Well, welcome to Mansfield Bible Church. We're glad that you're here with us this, this cold or chilly morning. I thought we were done with winter. What happened? We live in North Texas, right? If you don't like the weather, just wait a minute and it will be different. Uh, so, uh, well, turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We're continuing our series on Bible study. How to study your Bible. As we talked about before, uh, 500,000 people every month. Uh, Google how to study the Bible. 500,000 a month, 6 million a year, 60 million in 10 years. Google how to study your Bible. And so it's an important topic. It's one that people want to know about. And I want to talk about it uh, through this series. Uh, We talked about the fact that there are three major categories that you want to think in when you're studying the Bible. Three things that you want to do, and you want to get them in the right order. Observation first, interpretation second, and application third. We get in trouble when we put the second one first, uh, the interpretation, asking that question. We need to ask the question of observation over and over, and that question is, what does the text say? What does it say? And then the second question that we ask is, what does the text mean, right? If we get that out of order, we're asking for meaning before we understand what the text actually says. It's what the text says that helps us to understand meaning. And if we don't observe well, then we won't interpret well. And if we don't interpret well, then our application is going to be way off. And so we need to make sure that we keep those three things in mind. Observation first. uh, interpretation, and then application. There are six questions that we ask ourselves when we're doing observation. They're simple questions, who, what, when, where, why, and how. The six questions of observation. And so when we look at any text, anytime you do your devotions in the morning, anytime that you are uh, uh, listening to a message, you want to write, you could just write those questions down and begin to answer those questions. Sometimes the questions give you the obvious answers. Sometimes the obvious answer all of a sudden sparks interest and it helps you to understand something that wasn't quite so obvious at first. So we've had a uh, test every week, right? Since we've done this study, well, today will be no exception. For today's test of observation, I want you all to close your eyes. Every eye closed, and I know people peek whenever the people, a pastor says that, no peeking, right? No peeking. And I'm going to ask you one simple question, and I want you to respond not by opening your eyes. I want you to keep your eyes closed. I want you to put uh, uh, your fingers up with an answer to how many, uh, either one or two or three fingers, whatever you need. And here's the simple question. You've been in this room multiple times, most of you. Some of you are visiting for the first time. We'll see how well all of us observe this room. And my question is this, how many doors are in this room? Yeah. And, I, and double doors will count as one door, right? Okay, so any double door counts as one. Any single door counts as one. So put up your fingers. Put up your hands. I want everybody with hands raised with some number. I see four. I see uh, ten. I see three. I see all sorts of numbers all over the place. Okay, now open your eyes. And let's count. Let's start over there. One. Yeah, it's funny, right? One, two, three, four, five. Six, seven, eight, because there's one back in the cubby hole there. Nine, 
Uh-huh, somebody sees it. There's a door on the stage. Do you see the doorknob? It's all black back there, but the, and, I, and the door is locked. Otherwise, I would open for it and show you the door's there. Oh, and there's one in the drum pit, too. Ah, so that's real observation right there, right? So we got 11 doors in this room. 11 doors. So uh, observation, we see, but we don't always observe. And so it's important for us as we look at the scriptures to see and observe, which means asking good questions. So we're looking at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's read it together. Uh, you don't have to read it out loud. I'll just read it and you listen. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's application down there at the end, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's the applicational part of it. Well, let's understand the first part of it. And the question is this. The reason I picked this passage, you read that first phrase, all scripture is God-breathed. Some of you will have the word inspired of God. How many of you have that as the translation? And you probably have the New American Standard uh, or maybe the ESV. I don't know if it reads that as well. Uh, But some of it says inspired. That actually comes from the Vulgate, the Latin. uh, And it was translating this particular Greek word. And so when the English translators translated, they went ahead and used what was familiar. And they use the word inspired. That word inspired, if you want to study what we're going to talk about today, you might look up the phrase uh, inspiration of the Bible. Because that's what we're talking about. It's a theological issue called inspiration. And the, the phrase that the actual word that's used in the original is the word, or is, the, is, a, is a word that has, is, is a compound word, theos for God. And then a variation of the word pneuma for uh, breath or wind or spirit. And so it's theo nuestas, which means God breathed. God breathed. It pictures, it carries the picture that you see with Adam in Genesis, where God breathed into him the breath of life. And so there's this idea of the power of God, the creative ability of God, the uh, origination of God, that he originated it. And and in that case, with Adam on a passive subject, a passive uh, material, dirt in that case, that he pulled, he formed together into a person, and then he breathes into it the breath of life. And so you have that similar picture here that, that Scripture is something that God originated, that God breathed, that God was the one who caused to be. And in fact, Jesus is called the living word, the word that's from eternity. And so there's this idea that the word of God is something that God originates and not something that people originate. You see, when people look at the Scripture, we have to make a decision each of us have to make a decision. Is, are these the words of God? That's the decision we have to make. Is this the word of God? Are these God's words of his self-revelation to us? Or are they something else? Are they the words of man, of humanity, about God? Writing what people think God must be like. And so they write in some way where they are, in a sense, inspired. And the question is, is what was inspired? 
Was it the person? Was it the uh, effect? Was it the words of God? And so those become the questions that people wrestle with. And, and, uh, and in fact, uh, what you'll find is, is people will say, well, there's errors in the Bible. And those errors, uh, there are some places where the Bible is contained. In fact, that phrase, all scripture is God breathed, can be uh, understood in a different way. Some have, have looked at and said everything that is scripture is God breathed. And they see that all scripture understood in that way. And so they come up with these different theories of inspiration. And in fact, I have a chart I forgot to use in the, in the first hour, but if you'll place that chart up on the screens for everybody to see, there are a number of different views of inspiration. Uh, no, not that one. Yes, that one. Uh, there's natural inspiration where people's genius, you know, these genius writers, these writers like what we would see at G.K. Chesterton, or we would see these different poets uh, in our society. We would see... Uh, 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 I just went blank on poets' names. But anyway, all these poets, Longfellow uh, would be one. Uh, but uh, that they just, in their genius, they just write. And they have these inspired moments. And so we look at inspiration that way. We look at it inspiration in the same sense with uh, artists. When a, a Rembrandt paints a beautiful painting, they say, wow, he was really inspired, right? And so the question is, was people really inspired when they wrote the scriptures? That's one view, mystical, that the, the spirit guided, a degree inspiration, that some parts are more inspired than others. How many of you have a red letter edition of the Bible, right? And so some people say, oh, the red letters, they're Jesus' words, so they're more inspired than the rest. Are they more inspired? No. They're Jesus' words, but they're not more inspired than any other part of Scripture because God inspired it all. And so it's not some uh, degree of inspiration that some parts are more inspired. Partial inspiration, only some parts are inspired. The other parts have error. The other parts are mistaken or, or have problems. And if that's the case, uh, it's, uh, we're, we're all in trouble. Because who decides what parts are inspired or what parts aren't? Uh, the parts that you want to prove your point, oh, those aren't inspired. The parts I want to improve my point, oh, those are inspired. And all of a sudden you can see where that goes. Partial inspiration, concept inspiration. Some would say, well, the concepts are inspired, but not the actual words themselves are inspired. And that would be another view. Uh, and, and, and we'll look at, see, does Scripture hold that? Did Jesus hold that? Did Paul hold that? That uh, only the concepts were inspired. And then there's the Bartian inspiration. A guy named Karl Barth uh, came up with a view that it wasn't the actual words. He believed that there, was error, there were errors in the Scriptures. But he said, when I read the Bible and then I have this encounter... This experience with Christ, that becomes the living word because he's the living word and that becomes inspired. That's where inspiration occurs. That's where without error occurs. And so the question is, is what were the biblical author's view about this? What was Jesus's view about this? Did he hold to one of these views or did he hold to every word, every part and so we ask ourselves the question as we get started, who wrote these words, right? Well, they're not red letter, so you know Jesus didn't write them. Paul, the apostle, wrote this book, 2 Timothy. Now, it's important for us to understand when he wrote. Now, that's the next question, right? Who, when? Uh, when did he write? Well, he wrote near the end of his life. And in fact, 
Uh, the last three books are, are usually called the pastoral epistles, the last three books of Paul. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He actually wrote 1 Timothy and then Titus and then 2 Timothy. He wrote 1 Timothy because he had left Timothy in Ephesus, gone to northern Greece, and then he wrote Timothy back, 1 Timothy. He went to Cyprus, uh, I mean to Crete. He dropped off Titus, and then he wrote Titus, the book of Titus. And then he got arrested, was taken to Rome while he's under house arrest. In Rome, he writes 2 Timothy. Now, to understand the historical situation, what was going on, you have to understand Nero was in charge. Nero had allowed part of Rome to burn. Some said because he had some building projects he wanted to do. Some said that he was just kind of insane. Whatever the reason, he had to blame somebody, and he blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And so he would start crucifying Christians and torching them, lighting the uh, Appian Way and, and other uh, roots there. And he crucified Peter, uh, according to tradition, upside down, and beheaded Paul. Did Paul understand that this would be his last letter that he would ever write to anybody, much less to Timothy? I think he did. In chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Did he know? Seems like he did know this was going to be the end. So these were his last words. This book was his last book to write. So what did he focus on? What did he want Timothy to really know? Preach the word. He says, I want you to preach the word, chapter 4 and verse 2. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And what word was it that he wanted him to preach? That which he could count on. That which he had confidence. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is God. Breathe. And he wanted him to, to know it well. And so he told him in, in chapter 2, keep reminding them of these things. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. What did he talk about in this book? God's word. Preach it. Have confidence in it. Deal with it accurately. And do it person to person, he says in chapter 2, verse 2. And the things you have heard me say. What was that? Word of God. The things you have heard me say. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men. So these same words, entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. In other words, teach it, promote it, encourage it. So these weren't idle words in the mind of Paul. These weren't words that, that, uh, that, that he wanted to just treat lightly. It's, it was God's word that he believed and he wanted us to have confidence in. And so we have to go back and we have to understand what is Scripture? Because you look at this and, and I, I looked at different commentaries. I looked at different gra uh, Greek grammars and what, how, how it, is there something that would help us to understand uh, which kind of... Uh, Adjective, is this a predicate adjective? Is this, you know, I was looking at all the different things. And the thing that I realized is the answer to this all scripture, referring to either all scripture wherever you find it, or all scripture, meaning the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, 
is proven not by necessarily the grammar of this particular text. It's based on what, how the Bible views itself. And so we have to understand it. How do we have the Old Testament? What is the Old Testament that we have? Who was responsible to keep the Old Testament? Well, we find from Romans chapter 3, Paul talks about that. He's talking about the advantage that the Jews uh, had. And he's asking the question, what advantage did the Jews have? And in Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, he says this uh, in answer to that. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way, first of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The very words of God. They were entrusted with keeping the words of God. The reason that we have an Old Testament is because the Jews took care of it. They were very meticulous about it. When they, when, when they had the books of Moses, when they had, uh, and they were copying these books, when they were copying anything in the Old Testament, if there was a mistake and they looked at it and said, I think there's a mistake here, they would not even tamper with it. They wouldn't just correct it. They would do what's called a cathedral correct. They would change what is written or they would mark it, notate it, and then they would put in the margin what is read. Here's what's written. Here's what we think is supposed to be the reading. They wouldn't even change it, so they would leave it for you to decide which one is supposed to be there. So they had a high degree of, of inspiration of the Old Testament. Josephus tells us that uh, in, the, in the Council of Jamnia, where a bunch of rabbis got together and they were, they were trying to, to reaffirm what, what the Old Testament was, uh, they came up with the, the canon of the Old Testament. They came up with 22 books. You say, wait a minute, we have 39. Yep. That's because the minor prophets were all one book. Well, there's 12 right there, right? And then they had 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. That was, those were also uh, in like one book. And so they had the exact same Old Testament in the 22 books that we have in the 39. And so they included, or they had uh, the Old Testament. So we know that's the Old Testament. Now, some Bibles that you have will include the Apocrypha. The Council at Jamnia did not include the Apocrypha. They didn't include those as part of the Scriptures. And if Paul's correct here in Romans chapter 3, 2, and I would say that he is, they were responsible for keeping the Old Testament, then what they determined was the Old Testament should be it. We'll look at another place uh, in uh, Luke 11 to see what was Jesus' perspective on what the Old Testament entailed. And, and Luke eleven fifty one. 51, I know you're going to just go out and memorize this verse right away uh, because it's so, um, so helpful. Uh, in Luke eleven fifty one, 51, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament. And here's what he says. Listen to these words. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all. And you're going, wow, i got to memorize this first, right? <laughs> but what is he saying? He's saying from the blood of Abel, let's stop there. Who was Abel? First person killed in the Old Testament, right? So who do you think Zechariah was? The last one. Jesus is saying from the first death to the last death in the Old Testament. Were there deaths in the Apocrypha? Yes. All those books came chronologically after 
And Jesus is saying, from this death to this death, from beginning of the Old Testament to the beginning uh, to the end of the Old Testament, and he's basically telling us, this is what I consider the Old Testament, which would include only the 39 books that we have and no more. So the Apocryphas write out, according to Jesus, the Apocryphas write out according to those who kept the Old Testament and were the keepers of the Old Testament scriptures. And so what we have... In the Old Testament, the 39 books, Scripture would say, this is Scripture. Jesus quoted from almost all of those 39 books, a few exceptions that he didn't quote from, never quoted from the Apocrypha. And so you realize the Old Testament was the 39 books that we have. Those are the ones that you see in the New Testament for the Scripture says, thus saith the Lord. You see those different kinds of phrases that are being used. And so I think, well, okay, that's great for the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? What books uh, uh, in the New Testament should be included? And, uh, and should we have this New Testament? Does the New Testament claim for itself that it's Scripture? Or are we just assuming that? Well, I'm going to give you five passages of Scripture. We're going to do a little Bible drill here this morning, so be ready to you know, keep your seatbelt fastened, uh, tray in the upright and locked position. Um, and we're going to look at these five different verses. You can remember them because uh, the first uh, three are easy to remember. 3.16. You remember John 3.16? These are other 3.16s in the, in the New Testament. And then we're going to do two 5.18s. So you remember 3.16, 5.18, you got five verses, right? We're going to look at the first one. It's in 2 Peter 3.16. That's one of the 3.16s. Of course, we were looking at the, uh, one of the other 3.16s, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? So 2 Peter 3.16, and we'll look at uh, uh, the verse right before it is important to it as well. Because it says, uh, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom given to him. He, verse 6, so we know that in 16, he is referring to Paul. Paul writes, and I'll just put his name in there, he writes, or Paul writes the same way in all his letters. So he's referring to all the letters of Paul. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And you think, yeah, every time I read them, it's hard to understand their stuff. He says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own, uh, their own destruction. So what is Peter saying about Paul's letters? They're scripture. So Peter is calling Paul's letters scripture. So what do we have if we have Paul's letters, if we include First and Second Peter, and then we have Paul's letters, uh, we have about half the New Testament already. Some think that Paul was the author also of Hebrews. If he was the author of Hebrews, you include Hebrews in that. Now, I tend to think that Apollos may have written Hebrews, but that's just me. It makes for a great discussion uh, who wrote the book of Hebrews, but bottom line is we don't know. But you have all of Paul's writings, and then does Paul refer to anybody as Scripture? And he does. We'll look at one of the 518s, 1 Timothy 518. So you're in Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy and 518. And we have an interesting passage. Two quotes of Scripture. Verse 18 says, For the Scripture says, so he clearly says, this is going to be Scripture. I'm going to quote Scripture. 
And the first one, he says, do not muzzle the ox while he's treading the grain. Now, if you have a a Bible with cross-references, you can look down at the cross-reference, and it says Deuteronomy 25.4. So that's a direct quote out of Deuteronomy 25.4. But then he quotes another passage of Scripture that he calls Scripture. The worker deserves his wages. That's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It's only found in Luke 10.7 as you look at the cross-reference there. So Peter's saying Paul's writings are Scripture. Paul's saying Luke's writings, Luke's gospel, the book of Acts, are Scripture. And so all of a sudden, now you have Luke and Acts, all of Paul's writings, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, possibly Hebrews. You have 1st and 2nd Peter. You've got a whole lot of the New Testament already accounted for. You have the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning they, they're, they're, they uh, have verses that are similar. John's gospel is a little different. But there are three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can see that they borrowed some of the stories from each other, or they apparently did, because some of the stories are very similar, worded very similarly. And yet they had their own emphasis, their own perspective, and they added some of their own material as well, depending on their audience and also depending on what they recalled and wanted to bring to bear. And so you have all of a sudden three of the Gospels. You have, you have uh, 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 Acts, you have uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I mean, you got First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. I mean, it's like you've you got a whole lot of the, the New Testament accounted for. And so the question that we ask ourselves on these 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament, especially when we look at this idea of God-breathed Scripture, to what extent, to what extent did they understand it to be inspired? Was it in the concepts only? Was it different? If you look at a, uh, another 5.18, Matthew 5.18. Like I said, you're going you're, you're to know your Bible pretty well this morning, right? Matthew 5.18. In Matthew 5.18, we have Jesus speaking, uh, kind of red letters, but not more inspired, but... Christ's words all the same, he makes a comment in Matthew 5.18 that's pretty instructive to us. In fact, in 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, some of you will have the words jot and tittle in there. How many of you have those words in the Bible that you're reading? Some of you have that. I know the King James uses those, uh, and then and there may be an, another version or two that has jot and tittle. That's, those are the phrases that are most familiar to us. Uh, but but it's, uh, uh, jot is, is really the word yod. If it's translated uh, with the J, is usually translated in the Hebrew by our Y. Uh, that's where we get Yahweh instead of Jehovah. And so you look at this, uh, the letters of the alphabet, uh, and you see all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now show the next one where the Yod is. That's the Yod. Notice its placement in the, in, among all the letters. Now go back to the, uh, 
Uh, notice that that yod is half as tall and half as wide as most of the other letters. I guarantee you that's the one that Jesus had in mind here. Not the smallest letter. Now he also said not the smallest stroke of a pen. So if you take the word, the, the letter bait, which we transliterate with, uh, uh, with a uh, B, and then the, word, the letter cop, which would be either a C or a K, uh, you notice that the only difference between those two is that the B has just a little bit of a ledge on the, on the right end of it. Otherwise, they would be identical. Jesus is saying, to that degree, to that degree, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So let's take an English word that might uh, help us. We'll take the word fat. Now, I could take that word fat and just have one little stroke of a pen. And I have pat. There's difference between fat and pat, right? I could take another little small stroke on that P, and I have the word rat. And another little small stroke, and I have the word bat. So the smallest stroke of a pen is significant, right? It can make the difference. There's a difference in meaning between fat and pat and rat and bat. Uh, unless you have a fat rat named Pat. And I don't know how to work the bat in there. It would, that might not be pretty. But... Uh, and so you, it, it, the meaning is completely different by the smallest stroke of a pen. And so Jesus is saying, to that degree is what I hold the scriptures to be, that they will be fulfilled to that degree. The Apostle Paul, who wrote to us 2 Timothy 3.16, dealing with all scripture, says, uh, uses that in a very practical way. This is our other 316. It's found in the book of Galatians. Galatians 316. You had 2 Timothy 316, 2 Peter 316. Now Galatians 316. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, those are all go eat pie and cake is the way you can remember it. Go eat pie and cake and then wash it down with a lot of tea because then you have First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. That helps you remember nine books of the Bible, right? Galatians 3, that was free, no charge for that. Um, <laughs> Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, singular, meaning one person who is Christ. In our English version, that's one letter difference. An S versus no S. In the Hebrew, it would be a little different, but it would, but it would basically be the singular of the word versus the plural of a word. He's making a whole argument that it's not referring to the nation of Israel, but referring to the Messiah, Christ, to Jesus all based on the singular versus a plural. So what do you think their view is, Paul's view, and Jesus' view of the Scriptures is at to what degree it's inspired? It's to the very parts of letters. To the very singular versus the plural. To the very smallest letter, smallest stroke of a pen. It's not just the concepts. 
It's not just partial. It's not some more inspired than others. How did we get the, uh, the New Testament and, and, and the Old Testament as well? We find from 2 Peter 1.21 where it originated. It says, above all, 2 Peter 1.21, uh, verse 20, For above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin, never, it didn't originate in the will of man. In other words, we didn't come up with this. People didn't come up with this. Humanity didn't come up with these words. How did we come up with them? Where did they originate? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That picture is of a huge sail of a ship and the wind is blowing it in a direction. And it used, God used, the Spirit of God used the individual author's own personality, own ability with the Greek. We know that the Greek of the Hebrew, uh, the book of Hebrews is the hardest Greek in the New Testament. The Greek of the Gospel of, of John is the easiest. And so when I, in my Greek class, started into the scriptures, they started us in the Gospel of John. And they did it second semester, and it was the easiest Greek, and it was a place to learn and to start. And so we know that the Greek uh, understanding of grammar or the use of grammar or the audience that they had they were writing to, they, they did in, in a special way. We know that as we look at this, we realize that each of the author has their own personalities. And that's reflected also in the different books. So it wasn't a mechanical dictation. It wasn't that they, they were just dictate, that God was dictating and they were just writing it down. But God, God moved in their hearts and he moved them in a direction. And the result was a one without error. And it had to be without error because of Jesus' view and Paul's view that even the smallest stroke of the pen is crucial and it's important. Why did he do this? Why did he give us his word? Because he wanted us to be confident that he wants to know us. I mean, after all, when God creates something, he does it perfectly. Sin is what's come in and mess things up. But, but God, when he creates and when he gets involved, the product is not going to be a sinful product. It's not going to be a broken product. It will be perfect. And that's what he created. All scripture is God-breathed. He breathed life into it. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So there's four words there. The first two involve instruction. The second two involve application. The first one, teaching, that he teaches us. And that we, when we think about if you're, if you're going to put tile in your house, uh, you, you want somebody to instruct you. And so you and your spouse may go and, and, and get tile training at... Uh, uh, at uh, uh, Home Depot or Lowe's or some other place and, and so you learn how to put tile down and then there's rebuking which happens after you get home and you start putting the tile down your spouse goes uh, that's not the way they showed us <laughs> and then there's correcting which is a part of that as well that you actually make the correction and you change it to make it right and then training in righteousness so that you become so good at it you help your neighbor put their tile down right if you were to take that when riding a bike, uh, the teaching is the initial instruction. You learn how to do your balance and you learn how with even training wheels at first and, and how to pedal. And, and you learn don't stop the, the front brake only. Right? You, you, back brake maybe only, but never the front brake, especially downhill. You could flip you over. 
And so, you, and so there's teaching, and then there's rebuking. No, 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 uh, be careful, don't do it that way. And then there's correcting, that you start getting it right. And then there's training in righteousness, that pretty soon you're, you're going and, and you know how to, how to ride the thing. And realize this is what he's saying in our spiritual lives as well, that we need that teaching. How do I, how do I walk in the Spirit? How do, I, how do I learn to study God's Word? Uh, what do I look for? What are the things that I, I need to understand? And so I begin to be taught God's word, and then I'm, I'm, I'm corrected on that, I'm rebuked on that, and then I start correcting myself, and then I'm training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, so there's application. God's word can be counted on. It can be depended upon. It is God's word. These are the words of God. What we have before us is God's word, and he pursues us through his word. He pursues us by revealing himself to us and drawing our hearts to him. And his words are those which we can count on. I love what Charles Wesley said when he was dealing with this issue and he was trying to answer some of the objections that people had about the word of God. And here's what he said. Uh, He proposed this following logical argument, a very simple argument, but I love it. He says, the Bible must be the invention either of good men, this is one, or angels. That's one uh, one possibility. Second, bad men or devils. And third option, or of God. So good men, bad men, God. Or angels, demons, God. Here's what he said. He says, it could not be the invention of good men or angels. For they neither would or could make a book and tell lies all the time they were writing it saying, Thus saith the Lord. Right? They wouldn't say that. So good people wouldn't write this down just as their words, knowing it was their words, and saying, Thus saith the Lord. He said, It could not be the invention of bad men or devils, for they would not make a book which commands all duty, forbids all sin, and condemns their souls to hell to all eternity. He says, therefore, I draw this conclusion that the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. I love his statement. I love his uh, argument. I mean, it's a simple argument, right? But powerful. We have before us the very words of God. His self-revelation because he wants us to know him. And as we study it, as we read it, may I encourage you to know we can have complete confidence in what God has provided us. He wants us to know him. He pursues us. He loves us. This is his love letter to us. I want to encourage you, if you've never done much reading in the Bible, I'd like. i encourage you to start in the Gospel of John and just read his Gospel. Even if you've read the Bible a lot, go to the Gospel of John. I don't think we can take a long enough look at Jesus. And so I encourage you, start there. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And we thank you for your word. It's powerful. Isaiah says that it doesn't come back empty, but accomplishes what it was sent out to do. The author of Hebrews tells us it's powerful and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword and divides and penetrates between the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and it it judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, your word is powerful, and it exposes us. It's sometimes why we're uncomfortable reading it. 
Lord, I pray that we wouldn't stay away from it, but that we would read your word, that we would ask the simple questions of who and what, when and where and why and how. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, touch us, move us as we read your word towards you. Soften our hearts, Lord, and help us to grow closer to you, more in love with you, more in tune with your ways. Transform our thoughts to become more like your thoughts and our ways your ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.